You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson, and I teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I'm very glad to talk with you today. This show, as you might know, is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and each year we do a network-wide crossover series for Halloween. It's one of my favorite things that we do. And this year, each show in the network is covering a different Stephen King book, and the subject for our show here today is Pet Cemetery. Um, now, this book is certainly one of the most disturbing books I've ever read, and uh, visiting again in, after 25 years since I first read it, I was kind of shocked at how much I even remembered, and there's a bunch to talk about. So let's kind of get right back into it. So joining me today are two luminaries from the from the network, our omnipresent, omniscient uh, uh, press uh, liaison, Kristen Philippic. Kristen, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Kristen's great to have you back on the show. Uh, she's been on uh, several episodes over our, our run, and it's always great to talk to her. And uh, joining Kristen and I uh, from the Book of Nature podcast, professor of physics at Luther College, Todd Pedler. How are you doing, Todd? I am doing just great. Uh, <laughs> you sound Japan great right now. So I'm a little, I, I'm, it's a little early, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Yeah. It's 6 a.m. where Todd is and it's 5 p.m. where I'm at. And I think Kristen too. I think we're both Easterners. Sure, so, um, and so, yeah, yes. Todd yeah, is, Todd is calling in yeah. from uh, Japan where he's doing sciencey things with Japanese people. And so uh, it's lots of fun. So um, so uh, as we know, the the network is doing the crossover. We're all taking a different Stephen King book. And I'm sure we'll probably mention the movies maybe in passing, but we are going to focus on the book here. There will be spoilers, of course. Um, and although I, th- I think at this point, everyone pretty much knows the story of Pet Cemetery, who's listening to this at least. But um, joining uh, the crossover this year, um, over on your show, Todd, the Book of Nature, uh, is it Hackney running that one? Charles Hackney is running that one, and who's surprised at the one he's chosen? <laughs> the Shining, right? Um, so, the, indeed, it makes perfect sense, and that's timely because uh, Doctor Sleep, the sort of sequel to The Shining, is about to hit theaters here, probably about the time that this uh, these shows drop. So, um, and over at the Christian Feminist Podcast, I don't know who's going to be leading that one, but they're going to be talking about Carrie and the Christian Humanist, the flagship uh, show, the flagship, excuse me, the flagship network on the Christian humanist network is uh misery they're covering misery the show is not misery but they're talking about misery and uh the city of man will be talking about a book called revival which i've never even heard of actually so um, i'll be excited to hear about that one um and so yeah take a listen to uh, all the shows on the network i think you'll find something uh entertaining and uh, and useful uh and uh, and kind of fun for the halloween season so let's kind of jump right into talking about pet cemetery um, this is a big book, um, <laughs> and uh, it's got a, a lot of sort of subplots. Uh, Todd, do you want to take a stab at just kind of giving us a, a brief plot summary? 
But, you know, actually, as I as before before I get going here, I'm actually glad this is as short a book as it is. <laughs> there are some monsters. This know, is true. This uh, is not the stand, have, right? Yeah. It is. It is not the stand. Um, we'll cover many of the twists and turns, but the basic the basic gist of this is you have a family with uh, uh, Lewis and Rachel Creed and their uh, children Ellie and and Gage, who are young. Uh, Ellie is. Let's see. At the beginning of this book, what is she? Six or something like that. Yeah, this? she's in or kindergarten. That, uh, yeah, she started kindergarten, kindergarten, right? So she's five, turned six. That's right. Right, right. And Gage is uh, is a toddler. Um, as a family, they moved to Maine, uh, where Lewis has taken up a job as a doctor at the clinic at the University of Maine. And you, you know, you get the, at the beginning of the story. Uh, you know, I, I made a remark uh, in the in the margin that um, I can hear the movie voiceover guy uh, immediately <laughs> at the beginning of this movie. You know, this idyllic scene of this country. You know, this 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 beautiful wooded countryside, and all is not right in Ludlow. <laughs> um, you know, there's something that's that you know something wicked. This way comes. Oh, that's another story. You know, there, there's a lot going on there with uh, family background. Uh, Rachel's parents are, we find out, very possessive of her, and and you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of backstory there that we will, I'm sure, get into. Uh, Lewis is kind of the you know the 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 boy who stole their daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some sense, there's that undercurrent that uh, runs throughout uh, at least until uh, till the end, really. Um, and Lewis's first day on the job is an interesting one, uh, in in which uh, a uh, young man is is uh, brought in to the 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 clinic essentially dead but not quite um uh having had you know been been run into by truck or a car i don't remember he was out running and some very strange things occur with this uh (laughs) with this particular individual last name of pascal you know there's there's some weirdness there at the beginning of of uh of the story connected to this individual but then life kind of goes on um there's a neighbor neighbor uh, couple an older couple across the road from uh across the highway from uh from where the creeds live uh judd and norma who you know judd is really one of these uh sort of great tropes in 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 much fiction the older wiser uh guy who knows all in some sense you know in 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 some supernatural fiction there's all there's often a character that you know is the one who really sort of has the lowdown on on everything and and, and judd, judd is that character mm-hmm. um it's interesting to me to think of the uh <laughs> to think of the film versions which i have not seen by the way so i, I i've not polluted myself i've not seen <laughs> either either version and i'm not sure i want to actually now that i think about it but um judd crandall's character is played by fred gwynn i believe yeah and john lithgow yeah wow you know so, so um it's 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 interesting uh as i as i think about him i actually think of james cromwell as the person i envision uh, in that role but that's uh that that's a little different but he's you know he takes lewis he takes lewis in under his wing uh, a little bit um just to introduce him to the area and ultimately to introduce him 
to Pet Cemetery um, and uh, that which is beyond Pet Cemetery. So there's this uh, location behind the house of the Creeds where um, historically people, uh, children have taken their, their, their dead pets up there to bury them. And there's, um, there, there's uh, nothing particularly I, there's nothing particularly mysterious about that particular uh, that particular locale, but there is the that which is beyond yeah. the pet cemetery, past the deadfall. Um, that <laughs> exactly, um, which in a dream sequence early on in the film, this Pasco character shows up a dream sequence, or is it a dream? Yeah. Um, uh, where uh, he warns not to go beyond uh, the pet cemetery. Yeah. In. Uh, Let's see. I'm trying trying to think. The the what I, what I recall uh, next is the 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 daughter. Uh, sorry, the, the children and wife go back to Chicago to visit with the family at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis staying behind, and the family cat Winston Churchill, otherwise known as Church, um, uh, apparently gets out and gets run over. Gets run over uh, in the highway that runs between uh, the Crandalls and the Creeds. And um, this is where sort of things start to break down to to some degree because um, we find out that uh, Judd has a connection to this beyond the pet cemetery beyond the pet cemetery um, uh, burial ground, uh, an Indian burial ground, uh, the Mick Max or, or something like this yeah. is the, in the native tribe. Um, and uh, in the middle of the night, uh, encourages Lewis to go bury church there. No explanation given as to why one would do this. Remembering, of course, that Pasco in this dream has warned Lewis not to go uh, beyond the pet cemetery into this place. Nevertheless, Judd takes him there and they bury the cat in this burial ground. There are some mysterious things that happen up there. Long short of it is they bury the cat, they go back, Lewis goes back home to his house, uh, and later on the cat comes back the very next day. Yeah. Uh, as the song goes. <laughs> and uh, it's a little different. Is a little different. So uh, I'm giving a movie length description of this. (laughs) Yes. So eventually uh, that plants the seed in in, uh, Lewis's mind that this is a possibility. You can raise dead things back to life. And uh, and eventually, to no one's surprise, his his child Gage gets run over uh, by a a truck and, um, and Lewis... Um, torments over it and disinters Gage and buries him in the pet cemetery and uh, and all heck breaks loose uh, after that and so that's uh, uh, and it sort of ends in very bleak ways right um, yeah it's a very uh, that, that was a that was a good summary and yeah it's all about the kind of the forbidding the foreboding if you will of uh, of what lies beyond that pet cemetery which in itself is rather quaint right it's actually kind of cute that kids over generations have um, buried their their beloved pets in this this place all on their own accord. There's no sort of uh, um, institutional tradition in ha- having them do this or taking care of it. They just sort of do it out of um, being part of that community. But then just beyond oh, that, go ahead. 
Is it all on their own accord? Well, and that's a that's a question. Yeah, um, like <laughs> it is close enough to this uh, this power in the woods, right? That one wonders um, how much control uh, people do have of their own um, decision making. Um, and and just oh, and Kristen, anything to add to that uh, uh, a summary? Any important subplots? I think we I think we got most of the high points. Yeah, uh, the one other one I guess I would add is that. Um, at one point, there's a lot of reminiscing in this book, and one of the reminiscences uh, we have um, Rachel re- remi- or finally talking about her dead yes. sister Zelda, yes. who had um, contracted meningitis, I believe it was, and, uh, and had a really terrible um, end of life experience that really traumatized Rachel as a girl and kind of haunts her to the end of her life. Um, um, yeah, her her sister basically becomes this kind of monstrous figure um, for her, and and she has a lot of guilt because she was glad when she finally died, right? And there was these, all these kinds of uh, um, deep psychological um, issues that were rooted in her sister's death. And, and there are many other sort of subplots that we may or may not get to, but it's a, it's a very kind of um, magisterial book in terms of its plot. Um, and I think it's important to say that Stephen King didn't actually want to publish this. This, for him, it was him going kind of too far. Um, it's a very bleak book, uh, and it's very kind of dark, especially if you're a parent. I, I, it's, it's just, it's kind of terrifying, right? And, um, and he just kind of wrote it and stuck it in a drawer, and the story goes that he had one more book to fulfill a contract with a publisher, and wanted to just sort of get that out of the way, and his wife told him, well, you've got Pet Cemetery, just give him that. <laughs> and so in 1983, Pet Cemetery gets published. Uh, and for King, it's, it's his most scary book for him. Go ahead. I think this is one of his most personal books. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there is a deep, because this exact, well, <laughs> I should say this exact thing happened. Well, yeah. <laughs> in some sense it did, right? I mean, you know, they, they, the, the, he has a daughter and they lost a cat and the, you know, the very stuff that goes on uh, at the beginning of the book, where uh, Ellie dream—well, she worries about the cat dying. Yeah, and um, you know that that whole sequence there ha- is exactly taken out of the pages of Stephen King's life. Yeah, right. So I, you know, I wonder how much of this is actually at least some of the thinking. This is a very cerebral book. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of internal dialogue going on. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how much of this reflects, well, maybe some of the things which made him hesitant about producing this story for the public. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, I mean, for someone who's committed to a family, this is a very kind of troubling book. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's definitely, it's not a, uh, a pleasant read. And I remember reading this like 25 years ago and I, in preparation for this, listened to the audio book as I think Kristen did um, narrated by was it Dexter right um, yes <laughs> that narrated the book and he does a great oh, job actually okay. um, and, uh, and 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 so I remember um, like so many details I couldn't believe how much I remembered of it because it's just that kind of um, haunting uh, in that way and I remember being just really unnerved by it the first time I read it and that did not go away um, this revisiting of it so um, and, and there's so many things to say we will never be able to touch on everything um, but so let me just kind of uh, begin if you will with uh, if it's okay with you guys 
down a road and and we'll see where we go. <laughs> Um, I, like I, I have a few things that I want to kind of get at, and I'm not really sure what order to put the, the conversation in to get to them. I thought we could start with theology, though. I think this is a, a deeply kind of religious book because it really does, for one reason, just assume uh, an afterlife that isn't all that different than many Christian versions of the afterlife. There's there's hell, there's um, demons, and there's sort of uh, you know possessions and that kind of thing. There seems to be uh, warnings from heaven uh, in this in this book, and so there's uh, there, there's a way in which this this kind of does a lot of deep theology. Um, if you remember, uh, listeners about a year and a half ago or so, I interviewed Doug Cowan about his book uh, about Stephen King and theology. It's called America's Dark Theologian. Uh, and he does have a really interesting chapter on Pet Cemetery that I'll, I'll get to in a little bit. But there's a lot of theological um, uh, topics in this book. Um, Kristen, let's start with you. Like, What is one that kind of stands out for you that you are found interesting? I was, f- I was definitely struck by the names. Yeah. In a book that sort of has religion in the background, um, the the family's last name is Creed, yeah. C R E E D, and uh, the the cat's name is Winston Churchill, but they always call him Church. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Going back to my high school English classes, I kept wanting to say, "Ah, oh, well, this must mean they must be doing this for this specific reason," <laughs> and I never quite figured out what that specific reason was, other than. Um, having some sort of spiritual uh supernatural just sort of constantly in the background mm-hmm. i i think that works yeah and um did i interrupt you i'm sorry um and just another thing that i noticed um so lewis is uh the, the church he never goes to is methodist but that's he has some background uh in a methodist church but not much um and uh, Rachel's family is Jewish, but they're not practicing either. Um, and when when Judd's wife Norma dies, which is the only like good death we have in the whole thing, um, <laughs> uh, Lewis is trying to explain some of these things to to Ellie, who's five years old at this point, and realizing, gosh. Uh, it seems kind of late to be starting these conversations, even though she's only five, but we simply have not done this at all. And she doesn't have a vocabulary here. Um, and then when Gage dies, she starts talking about what she learned in Sunday school. Mm. Um, so something changed in those few months. Um, and, and there's only set a few months apart. Um, but it, I had to think that they started becoming more involved in a church community or dropped the kindergartner off and then went to co- for coffee or something um, <laughs> uh, Norma died because suddenly this this little girl has a vocabulary that she simply did not have three months ago uh, that's a really good point actually I didn't even um, uh, tune into that and and the idea is true that like Lewis is a very I mean he's a materialist through and through right for him it, the body is just like a machine right and, and it can be understood as machines can be understood um, and he doesn't even like I wouldn't even say he's I guess he we would call him agnostic he's just thoughts of the supernatural just don't even occur to him right it's not that he's an, uh, against them it's just not, it's not part of his own belief system and so yeah and after Judd uh, introduces him to um, this 
clear supernatural place, right? Um, that, that does seem to open up uh, a conversation in the family about the role of, of, of church, right? Uh, the, not the cat, but the, <laughs> the place, right? And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, great, great, Kristen. Todd, did you want to follow up with anything on that? Well, so it's, it's interesting. I think we should definitely touch on this later, but um, uh, one of the things that I think Lewis is, is spends the entire novel wrestling with once, once this is revealed to him, which is very early on, um, is his innate tendency to um, ra- want to rationalize every single thing that's weird that happens, mm-hmm. rationalize it away. And, 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 you, you can see this gradual, you know, change in him where there's, you know, you go from fighting, fighting this and saying, well, no, this must have happened. This must have happened. This must have happened. Uh, okay. This is the way, you know, in some, some of the explanations become more and more crazy uh, that he has to, has to come up with in order to avoid the natural, you know, Occam's razor conclusion that, yeah, well, something you know, unusual is going on here that is beyond my understanding. We got to talk about that because there's there's there are things connected to that that I think are fascinating. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was going to bring up, uh, you you asked sort of what's the understanding of God that this book has? Yeah. Um. My my first comment on that is is I'm I'm curious about your thoughts about whether the book's understanding of God and Lewis's understanding of God are one and the same. Cause I'm not totally sure that they are. I'd like to muse on that. I haven't mused enough on that. And, and, and that's, that's, that's one thing, but there is, you know, Lewis's view at least at one point in the novel is fairly clear. There's a, there's a, there's a statement that I think was, uh, telling to me um it's that they sort of right dead center of the book um on the last really happy day of his life um which you know which is a, a few weeks before all, all hell breaks loose literally yeah um it, where he says that it seemed it came to seem to lewis that god in his infinite wisdom seemed much more generous when it came to doling out pain huh. and and um uh, you know, uh, so like you said, I, th- I think you said, Danny, um, I, I don't think, you know, Lewis is certainly, certainly materialist, certainly rationalist, certainly the one who's going to um, prefer the scientific to the to the dogmatic. Um, but he seems to have some kind of core belief there somewhere that you know, it just sort of maybe it's this very good old you know american understanding yeah you know god's there and what have you what whatnot but he keeps coming back to this there there are things you know somewhere in his background there's enough of a of a seed where at least the idea of god is present and he'll think about god at times um but he has a pretty you know a, a, a pretty sad view of, of, of who god is uh if he has any you know concrete views at all yeah that's really interesting and i would say to your initial question about whether the book has the same idea of god that um that he has um i i i think he believes in the power of god Right. Um, and I think that that is introduced to him with Pasco's death. He has this sort of um, supernatural moment when 
there's something happens that he can't quite explain, and it plants the seed of, of the, sutra, the supernatural that may have been dormant since he was a child or whatever. Um, right. And, and then Judd's introduction, uh, introducing him to um, the, the burial ground, uh, I think that is, that is a place in which that supernatural belief is, is developed. And it, it, but it's a belief in the power of God, which he wants to use, kind of, right? Um, and so... Um, I think he doesn't have a sense of the the grace of God and, and the and the the, the, exactly. the tenderness or whatever the the shepherding of God, and, and I think that Pasco's like prophetic. So when Pasco dies, like right before he dies, he starts like it's like something takes over his body and starts talking to Lewis with his last breaths, prophesying these things that are about to happen, and then his right. spirit keeps coming back. Um, a couple of times in the book and, and kind of interacts with both Lewis and his daughter Ellie all the way in Chicago or on the plane to Chicago, I think even. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and so he, he becomes this sort of like messenger from God who is trying to keep him out of trouble, right? And, and I don't think Lewis understands that the way the book does. I think the book, I think the book lets us know that there's more to this God than, than just the power of life and over life and death that, that Lewis sees. Yeah. Um, Kristen, do you have thoughts on this? When I saw that question on the outline, my my first reaction was, I don't remember any sense of God. Mm. I I just get this sense of foreboding evil, um, but I didn't have a sense of a goodness balancing that out somewhere. I mean, I don't know how else to take Pasco. Like he's definitely there. That's a good point. If it's yeah. o- if there's only evil in the afterlife, then why would it send Pasco back to warn to give to give Lewis a choice, right? Yeah, that's a solid point. Um, and so that and so I think he it might be a very distant God, like a God that's more distant than we're comfortable with <laughs> as Christians, right? But um, but I, mm-hmm. I think there is a sense of a, a supernatural good out there. Um, and and yeah, uh, I don't know. Like Todd, <laughs> did you I, you keep wanting to say something? I no, I like no, I I, I like. I like the notion of Pascal as this as this messenger of sorts because um, he I, and I believe the only the only two characters he deals with are Lewis and Ellie. I don't think there's any direct. I'm pretty sure that's it. Um, I think you're right. And you know, as I mean, but but it's interesting that it goes to Ellie. You know, and mm-hmm. and she is really. She, I, the more I got into this, and of course it, it develops further and further until you're in the last quarter of the book, and then Ellie is just front and center, you know, as as to me anyway, the uh, the the really most important character who's getting these insights. Largely, they're being dismissed as dreams and and you know trauma from from Gage's uh, death and what have you, but she keeps coming up with this you know what does she call she mis she mispronounces his name pax cow pax cow yeah pax cow that's yeah. right yeah you know but there are things she remembers the red shorts that this you know this guy was wearing which is apparently the i didn't look back to see if yeah it was described as he, he died in you know red running shorts but yeah, it was um, yeah yeah um you know she keeps coming up with these insights from him apparently you know apparently uh they interacted several times um 
in the night or, or whatever, to give little snippets of information that start to make Rachel think something very strange is going on here. Mm. Uh, so, but yeah, so if, if there is any good afterlife character, I, could say, I would say, yeah, it probably does have to be him because he's continually saying, don't go there. Don't do this. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, and, and incidentally, before we move to the next question, I, I, I'm often wondered, so Ellie is with her grandparents in Chicago at the end of the book when everybody else dies. So I guess to spoil it completely right. at this point, Gage is already dead. Um, he comes back and immediately goes and kills Judd um, in, in his house. And then um, driven by this kind of prophetic um image given to her by her daughter Ellie, Rachel flies back from Chicago on her own and is kind of supernaturally delayed to kind of to keep her from stopping what had happened, what Lewis had done. Um, and so she gets there just in time to get murdered by Gage as well. Um, and Lewis ends up um, killing Gage uh, with some sort of like a morphine shot or something, I believe. Um, yeah. And so, um, and but then he goes and reburies his wife, Rachel, in the pet cemetery at the end. And he thinks, well, I've, I'm this is sooner, so the evil thing won't have time to get into her this time. And so uh, he kind of rationalizes again for himself uh, a way that to make this to make the same mistake again. And the book ends with her just coming up behind him, saying, "Darling, right." And so we assume that nothing good is coming from this, right? Um, and but Ellie is gone from this situation, right? She's in Chicago um, with the grandparents, and and it's interesting to kind of imagine what might happen in the aftermath of this, actually, whether she gets, uh, whether she is completely shielded from this or whether it, uh, maybe in 25 years, he'll write another sequel like he did with the shining and Dr. Sleep. Right. So, um, um, but your question, Todd leads me to a question about the nature of evil then. Um, so Judd tell Judd, is asked by Lewis at one point if anybody tried to bury a person in there. Um, and at first Judd says no, but then after Gage dies, Judd knows what Lewis is thinking, right? And tells him this kind of story, horrific story about uh, Timmy Baderman uh, back in the 40s. It was in World War II, so it must have been in the, it was in 40s. So, so and um, mm-hmm. and uh, he dies and his father brings him back. And he comes back as this sort of like rather demonic figure he's like a zombie basically who is like speaking to people the supernatural knowledge that can only come basically from like satan right it's like it's it's knowledge from hell basically about all of their um secrets and everything and so what do you guys think of um the the nature of like what is coming back in these bodies that um, get buried in the in the burial ground well certainly the the two or three, I guess, uh, human beings we see come back as monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are clearly not themselves. Um, that Gage is not only killing people and saying terrible things, <laughs> yes. uh, but he is speaking in full sentences like an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, like, He's no two-year-old, yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, whereas the child was still very much in the learning to speak process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is some other creature that has inhabited this body. And I was trying to think back about the animals um, because the first time they they go to, beyond the pet cemetery, 
um, when the, when they're burying church, Judd says, "Oh, this is a dangerous place, but not for dogs or cats or pet hamsters." Mm-hmm. Um, and the the animals that we see come back, um, Judd's pet dog when he was a kid, and then Church, uh, they come back different and a little off, but not nearly as off. Yeah. Um, Judd says that he he did know of a bull that was buried and came back very bad and had to be put down almost immediately. Um, but he says that his dog w- was different and a little bit off, but he was a good dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was not evil, right? Yeah. Right, right. And Church seems certainly seems different and he goes and kills mice much more than he normally did but this was still normal cat stuff yeah (laughs) um so i was trying to think why the the humans seem to be universally coming back as monsters and we don't really see that with the animals yeah i haven't quite figured out why that is um i have a thought but uh, todd why don't you why don't you uh, follow up well so it's interesting um, when I so I mean the the first human actually you know who I thought the first human was going to be was Norma but uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was a little worried that that you know because Judd, Judd at times you know there, there's this conversation that goes on uh, anytime the connection to the beyond to the Indian burial ground uh, is mentioned that of this force that sort of draws you there and 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 pushes you towards actions that you wouldn't otherwise take. It's manipulative. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, so I, I sort of from very early on, you know, as soon as it was apparent that normal was going to die, I was wondering if he was going to try something. Um, but, you know, when I, when, when we first encounter this resurrected Timmy Bateman, um, I'm remi- I'm reminded actually I, I, I'm actually thinking he's he's not terribly evil. Uh, he just sort of sits there grinning, um, which reminded me of Frankenstein, mm. uh, mm. the, the creature's first uh, waking moments. Is he has this sickly grin, uh, as Shelley describes it. Um, and so you know I'm thinking sort of uh, you know not you know n- innocuous zombie. You know, just not quite there. So the similarities to to um, Church and Spot in particular, which is Judd's dog. Um, you know, the, Judd described petting him as like he was petting a piece of meat. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I I didn't think anything of it, but then you know, some of the things come up that you see that Timmy is really, <laughs> really, really problematic. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I, I wonder um, whether the idea here is the, you know, the, the higher capacity for the um, for mental faculties, the higher capacity for doing evil that mm. that human beings have, is the reason why they come out more deeply evil than than perhaps the animals do. Although Church at the end is pretty bad. Yeah, Church almost seems like a collaborator with Gage, right? It's almost like he's there to help him kill Judd. Uh, It's really kind of a terrible moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I just wonder whether it's the the higher human nature in some sense is is that which makes the capacity, because the capacity for evil is more, then they come back more so 
Yeah, I, I think that's um, I think that's actually kind of along the lines of where I would go too, Kristen, as I think that there's like a, a that's a way in which this book makes a case that human beings are not just another animal. Right. Um, human beings are actually something distinct. Uh, and, and I think that uh, that's another way in which this book mirrors a, a kind of Christian metaphysic. Uh, you know what I'm saying? A, a Christian idea of creation. Um, it, it's not, I'm not saying it's an exact mirror. And I'm going to actually th- use that as a transition, which I guess I'll do right now. Um, because past the deadfall, there's this sort of like um, mystical dark land. It's almost like uh, where Sauron lives, wherever that Mordor or something like that, right? It's this like cursed land, okay? It's like there's just something bad in the dirt it's, itself um, that is uh, that is cursed and evil, um, but not in a particularly Christian way. Um, one figure that keeps getting brought up, and this is where the book, I think, this is where the book has aspects that are not like Christian uh, metaphysics, right? Uh, not like Christian senses of evil. There's the Wendigo um, that they, that's that's surmised is this beast that's uh, flo- flying through the the flo- forests um, out there that basically corrupt men and, and, and possess them and make them into cannibals, basically, right? Um, and that's the the kind of uh, the, the the legend of the the of the of the Wendigo. So in this case, you've got kind of a, a vision of evil that isn't really out of the Christian tradition, but it's very much out of the kind of um, I don't want to call it pre-Christian because um, it's after Christianity, but but Native American traditions, like it's out in this sort of pagan uh, Native American traditional sphere, um, and, and so you've got a sense that the evil doesn't come from the Christian hell necessarily, but it comes from this kind of like evil force of nature itself. Uh, do you follow what I'm saying there? And I, I just kind of interested in your guys' thoughts on that. Well, I did, I did look up the Wendigo, and the Wendigo is a real deal. I mean, mm-hmm. there, you know, it's an Algonquian uh, uh, native uh, native myth. I mean, it's part of the fabric of Native American lore in 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 Maine uh, and and beyond. Um, I I you know I really thought it was very interesting how. Stephen King brings this aspect into the story um, because you really do have two lapsed Judeo-Christian types, you know, who are the central figures here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have moved into this region, which is very spiritually rich in its, you know, in, in, in at least in the indigenous peoples of the area. Um, and so to bring, to bring this sort of mystery in uh, again, to play on the fact that, uh, Lewis is really, you know, spiritually an infant in many ways. Um, he is, you know, transported into this unfamiliar place where there is this spiritual thing at play, which goes back, you know, thousands of years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in that particular region. Um, so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't look too deep into this, but I think, I, you know, what I see in the book with regard to the Wendigo is taken straight out of that region's peoples. Yeah. Well, I, I think what I would say is I wonder, and I'll just run this by you, see what you, uh, for, your, for your perusal, uh, for your consideration, whatever. Um, <laughs> the, I, I wonder if King is melding 
it's almost like what Neil Gaiman does in Sandman um, is you have this sort of vision of the afterlife that accommodates all competing afterlives, right? You've got, um, you got the, the Christian Judeo Christian God, you've got Norse mythology all in the same place. So I wonder, and, and in this case, you've got this um, evil entity that is not out of Christian, Christian ideas at all, this Wendigo. Um, and, mm-hmm. The people that come back out of the grave talk about hell, right? Um, about the right. people being yeah. in hell. And so I'm wondering if King is creating a metaphysic that accommodates the the Christian ideas of death and evil in the afterlife with native. So we're all sort of, it's like the, we all see parts it's of the like elephant. It's up the same mountain, except it's down. Yes, instead of up. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Into the same pit in this case, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I wonder about that. What, what do you guys think? Mm-hmm. That that does sound about right because they are. Uh, it it does seem to be moving back and forth pretty seamlessly between um, the the Wendigo uh, possessing these former people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and also there's reference to uh, uh, to like uh, th- this person is burning in hell. I, I saw her when I was there. Yeah. Or. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellie keeps talking about the story of the raising of Lazarus, mm. which you learned from Sunday school. And they and mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be a, a conflict. Um, they all seem to be building on top of each other somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you were talking, I'm also remembering it was it at Norma's funeral. It, it kind of go out of their way to say that this is like non-denominational or ecumenical or something like, uh, along those lines. And so there's a way in which kind of uh, sectarian boundaries are kind of uh, elided here. And I, and I think that's part of a larger theme of of of, of disestablishing boundaries uh, in general, all the way down with the deadfall, right? I mean, that's a boundary you're not supposed to cross and it constantly gets crossed. Um, and in addition, so Rachel comes from a Jewish background, right? And, 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 uh, and Lewis is a, is what Methodist or something like that. And so I do think that there is this kind of general way in which all kind of religions have the truth in uh, in this book, right? Uh, about the about their faiths, and and King is kind of creating this kind of dark vision about what they all have in common in some ways. Um, mm. And I wonder if that's why it's so disturbing. <laughs> it's tearing down boundaries that make us feel comfortable. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Well, this uh, this notion of the spiral too comes in mm. um, in several places, um, and you know, and, and it's it's interesting. It's a, it's a spiral that doesn't you know tend towards a point, but tends toward infinity. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, I I think one of the things that King does here, and I I believe elsewhere in his novels, but I'm not terribly well versed in in his writing. Um, there, you know, there, there is the space for the mysterious and the unknown, and 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 and, and to have this spiraling figure that even appears out of the randomly, supposedly randomly placed children's graves in the pet cemetery that form from above a spiral. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, you know, there's this this notion that all of this tends towards an unknowable, uh, an unknowable point. Um, you know, and that, you know, he may well be borrowing from druidic, uh, you know, uh, pictures of, uh, of afterlife and, or of, uh, of, of God nature, uh, cause this, you know, the spiral and the, you know, the labyrinth and whatnot, um, derived from that tradition too. And so, you know, it, it, it 
it, yeah, it is a giant amalgam of mystery in some sense that he, um, that he, he really builds here. Yeah. And, and at one point, doesn't he talk about Stonehenge, right? Um, like he, he makes the comparison to least, Stonehenge uh, in the way that the, uh, the shapes uh, form themselves almost out of, out of nature's will. Right. Uh, in this case, it's kind of an, uh, and, and events are kind of manipulated. Like Rachel misses flights uh, yes. and, and, and cars yeah. die in mysterious ways. It's almost like this place has a power that extends well beyond its boundaries um, and can manipulate and communicate with people um, wherever they are. And I do think there, there might be this kind of like uh, a pantheism almost uh, that's going on in terms of the, uh, the religious worldview of this book, um, which makes it um, quite fascinating, actually. Um, and even I think it accommodates uh, the Lewis Creed's rationalism uh, on some level. You wanted to talk about that at some point, Todd. Um, he not only like rationalizes supernatural explanations away, he also uses rationality to pursue stupid decisions, right? Um, like the, the, the decision to bury Rachel uh, at the end. Um, he has a rational explanation for it, right? Well, you know, what was the uh, gauge? had four days um and so in that amount of time he was too corrupted or something so she's just died i'm going to take her straight over there and she'll be fine right and so and there is a kind of weird logic to this right um and so i think it even accommodates that somehow <laughs> so. yeah well he you know there there are he he definitely is a person who wants to control what he can control mm -hmm. uh, and there is, I, I'd have to go back and reread um, just to watch his growing acceptance of some of this that he um, that he senses because he you know he's certain that he can fight it. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely certain that he can fight it. But then eventually he becomes a collaborator. Um, in I you know the whole the whole scene of of his. Um, <laughs> of his plan to get the family back, you know, to send them back to Chicago again and to go uh, and, oh, you know, he orders pizza. Yeah. <laughs> he orders pizza from the, the very pizza parlor, which is closest to the cemetery where, uh, where Gage is buried. Yeah. Um, they, oh, they have the best crust or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's, there, <laughs> there was something along those lines, right? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that, but you know, he—he—it's kind of just plainly put there. He says he said, you know, he realized this just happened to be the one which was closest. And so, oh, well, fine, I'll—I'll I'll just go visit while I'm waiting because there was going to be some delay because there were too many pizza orders. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'll go—I'll—I'll I'll go by the cemetery. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a tr and I guess this is a, a, a perfect segue into a, a question you got to ask: Is there free will in this book? Are all are human beings kind of just helplessly? Are there are we tools for the will of this evil in uh, in the in the in the forest? There, I I, I don't. I want to say there's no free will, but then I want to say maybe there is. I don't know. What do you think? 
Like Judd wants to stay awake all night um, to keep Lewis from um, burying Gage because he knows that's what Lewis is going to do. And there's like some force that basically puts him to sleep. And um, there, there's he's compelled to tell Lewis about the pet cemetery in the first place because um, he wants yeah. he doesn't want um, Ellie to uh, uh, to be. Um, uh, uh, hurt by the death of his cat, right? And so they have these like good reasons, good rational reasons for doing the thing that something wants them to do. <laughs> and so, is there is there free will? I tended to think there wasn't. That um, when Church dies, Judd does talk about wanting to do something kind for the Creed family um, after uh, Lewis had happened to be around right when Norma had a heart attack and she was saved because there was a doctor right there who could take care of her immediately. But then he also, but then when they're talking about it some more, um, he also says that, you know, I, I think I did it so that uh, Ellie would understand that sometimes dead is better. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> like that's crazy talk. <laughs> um, or the, the truck driver that kills Gage has a perfect driving record, um, except there was something that just said, you know, right now, this minute is the time where you should floor it. Yeah. Um, and it was totally out of character for him. And he was uh, depressed afterwards to the point of attempting suicide, but something got hold of him right there. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and combine that with... Uh, Rachel just missing a flight and and each of these individual things seems perfectly reasonable you know people miss connections and whatever else but the sum total did make me think there is there's a real inevitability going on here that once this place gets its claws into you um it's pretty much game over yeah the inevitability is, I think, a great way to put it. Uh, and I, I'm even thinking like the last good day right before what happened is uh, there. Lewis is flying a kite with Gage and it's a kite of a vulture. Right. Um, like there are no vulture kites. They don't make that. And so um, they're basically um, they're actually flying the thing that is the harbinger of their own doom. Right. And it's such a it's in some ways it's maybe a ham fisted symbol, but it, um, I think it may be so ham-fisted, it's brilliant. And so, you know what I'm saying? I think it's a really, really smart little uh, little detail to just show the absurdity of of this kind of, uh, what you're saying, this kind of inevitability of what's going on uh, or what will be going on in this book. Um, Todd. I, you know, you've mentioned the vulture thing. I I, I tend to think, I tend to err on the side of, of brilliance here because it's something you don't really notice yeah. necessarily. It's kind of a weird thing, but why, you know, I, 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 I'm sure there are those who would call it ham fisted, but I, you know, thinking back on it now, it is an interesting little detail. You know, I, I got to wondering a little bit about who, who, cause I, I do see their, the ability to resist now, maybe not ultimately to resist, but to resist the the things that are going on. I mean, you, you see Rachel several times trying to get back to Maine, mm. um, violently jerking the car left. You know, she's going to exit. So Judd had advised her to, you know, she talked to Judd on the phone before coming back. 
and Judd had said, well, don't, you know, hey, well, she, she said, I missed my flights. What do I, you know, what do I do? But, you know, and, and he suggests that I think she, he suggests that she rent a car from Boston, uh, Logan and, and, and drive, but he says, well, stop in Portland. Don't come all the way. Um, I've got things under control here. Mm. Uh, you know, and he has yet to tell her what's up, but, um, you know, when she passes the exit to, Portland, she's about to go pull off. She sees the Holiday Inn sign and whatever. And then something within her, now maybe this is, I, I might be actually killing my own argument here. Something within her, you know, causes her to jerk the uh, wheel back. Ah, yeah, you know, okay, I've just ruined my own argument. So maybe that was, <laughs> maybe, that's the, maybe the Wendigo is, is, is influencing her not to, uh, stay overnight in Portland, but to go on, um, because actually, if she gets there when she does, she's ripe for the killing. So mm. uh, you know, maybe it would be safer for her to <laughs> safer for her to stay overnight in Portland. Um, yeah. So okay, my one vestige <laughs> of free will. Well, um, you know, <laughs> there's another one though. Right at the very end, um, that's just what I was going to think of the the PA Steve. Right, um, Steve shows up. So Lewis burns down um, Judd's house with, I assume Gage's body still in it. Um, um, and he takes he's taking Ellie or I'm sorry Rachel, excuse me, to um, to the to the pet cemetery or past this pet cemetery. And um, and so he burns down Judd's house um, to kind of hide the evidence or whatever. And Steve comes and is absorbing all that and watches and he sees. Um, Lewis run across uh, uh, the the backyard, and so he follows him. And at this moment, it's 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 kind of mirroring when Judd first took Lewis uh, into uh, into past the deadfall, right, and and initiates him into this um, into this secret knowledge. Um, and in fact, the very beginning of the book, uh, Judd is like references the father that Lewis never had, right? And we never hear anything about his dad. And we and we've got this idea of this is this is sort of like um, a legacy being passed down from generation to generation. And it looks like that's going to happen again, right? With Steve following him into the deadfall. And Steve gets to the top. Um, and then he said, for a moment, Steve almost followed him. It was very, very close. And then internally, I could help him if that's what he wants. And I want to help him. Yes, that's the truth because there's more going on here than meets the eye. And I want to know what it is. It seems very well, very important. It seems like a secret, like a mystery. Then a branch snapped under one of his canted feet. It made a, a sound and blah, blah, blah. And then he ends up um, going back and kind of like losing memory of being there, right? Um, mm. And so my question is, does he make the choice there to not follow or does the Wendigo reject him um, because he's questioning because he's doubting um and and the, the kind of the way you get over that deadfall is to just not think about it you just don't look down you just take a, a walk of faith right a leap of faith um over this deadfall and you will go over it and um and he gets to the top and starts doubting and, and is he does he choose not to follow in those paths or is he just rejected i took it him as as him making the choice because the the wendigo the wendigo is urging him on you know, just a little bit beyond where you had read from, there's this, you know, the, he, he senses this pull, uh, pull of, uh, toward the place where Lewis was taking Rachel 
And then you get the, in, you know, the internal messaging again of the Wendigo saying, come on, walk the path, walk the path and see where it goes. We've got stuff to show you out here, Steve Marino, stuff they never told you about in the atheist society back in Lake Forest. <laughs> and then, you know, he, he right thereafter, he, he, he basically turns tail and runs. But, but I, I don't see, I don't see but maybe you know maybe i'm just not reading it well the next line where you stopped after um and then perhaps simply because it had enough for one day to feed on and lost interest in him the call of the place in his mind simply ceased uh and so i i don't know i think i don't know that there's a clear answer to this and i think that's what i love about it (laughs) i think he can see it both ways and and i think that's really um thought-provoking and an interesting conversation um kristen you're like looking like you want to chime in there um, that's pretty much what I was saying that, that I was, I had at first thought that, that Steve was the one choice to pull away. And then mm-hmm. uh, after that day, it says he never goes back to Ludlow and, uh, a year later, uh, takes a new job in St. Louis and it just gets away from this place altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested about what you just quoted there about the the place having enough for one day yeah so <laughs> it's full ah, yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah it's very interesting um I'll, I'll talk for a minute about the movie the new movie uh the newer movie about it um but it, they do something different at the ending um with the movie um so i have a couple more things i want to talk about and there's no sort of good way to naturally transition into these things um but one thing is i, I just kind of on a formal level think it's interesting it's just sort of an artistic choice that king makes to undermine success or um suspense excuse me uh undermine i'm used to undermining my own success all the time that's a Freudian (laughs) slip so um uh, but undermining suspense in this book i think it is a uh like we're told that gage dies before that is narrated right um Mm -hmm. and then at the end, like when um, Rachel's making her way back and she has this very tight window to make all these connections, we're told, oh, and she doesn't make them. And here's how it came to be that she doesn't make them. There's this sense of like trying to like you you would think that in a suspense novel, you'd want to kind of ramp to keep those things secret to keep people interested. Right. Um, this is showing the gun and shooting it off in the first act. Right. And, and not like and then explaining why it went off later on. And so I'm wondering if that has something to do with him trying to create this dreadful sense of inevitability um, that you were talking about. Um, Kristen, what do you think about that? And then Todd? That, that seems as good an explanation as, as I can come up with. Um, that I have heard that that's a device that um, Bertolt Brecht tends to use a lot. Mm. Um, that, uh, and you can, you can know what's going to happen and still be emotionally affected as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it totally makes sense to me that, uh, that there's a, the, the sense of inevitability, that there is no way of getting around this. And, and at one level, you know, it is not hard to see as soon as you hear talk about this great big busy road and make sure you keep your pets and children away, that's Chekhov's gun. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> that's not that hard to figure out. Um, but uh, King definitely takes it to a whole different level um, when he says, this happened in yeah. quite so many words, and then spins it out. Yeah. Yeah. Todd? Well, I, so 
I will confess immediately that that device did not do anything to keep this from being a page turner. I mean, exactly. You know, I, I think it's it's right in line with you know horror films where you absolutely know what's going to happen and you say, "Don't go behind that door, you idiot." <laughs> <laughs> you know and he's 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 playing with you you know he's he's doing um i think he i think he uses this brilliantly actually because it 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 does keep you know keep you focused on what you 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 know what's going to happen but your your curiosity is not so much focused on what you think might happen it's how is it going to happen it's um you know how is this going to come about here? I mean, th now that said, with with uh, you know regard to you know several instances where we know what's coming, um, uh, you know every big sort of section of the book is is triggered this way. Um, you know the last of which being Rachel's uh, you know trip to to go right back to Maine uh, after she had flown the night before or yeah the night before no same day uh, to Chicago you knew what was going to happen there um and uh, but there is this whiplash event in the middle of the <laughs> in the middle of the book that just completely threw me um and that uh so you know he, it's it's not like he doesn't have suspenseful episodes in here um or turns you know that the the reader doesn't expect uh, i'm referring here to this you know this interlude where there's just a you know an imagination that Lewis has about you know Gage not having actually died, and so yes. forth. I, he imagines this huge section. Did you see that coming? I I remembered that when I read it, and it was just yeah. I still remembered that 25 years later that that was yeah. such a heartbreaking section, right? Because you knew it was just oh. him, um, like going into this sort of place in his mind um to escape reality um and and it's just yeah. it was just so devastating i never forgot that and so um yeah when it came up again it was just that was one of the hardest parts of the book for me he, he becomes like an oh olympic swimmer or something like that right yeah right 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 yeah yeah so i i don't know i i don't i did not find that jarring at all that i knew things that were coming yeah. um i i think he's such he's such a skilled writer um, that he can do that. He can afford to do that. And um, the, the the richness of the story is, you know, his laying out how these threads intertwine to, to bring about the thing that he said was going to happen. Yeah, I agree. And I remember, I mean, you know, you know, I'm an English professor, right? And so I was under the tutelage of English professors, you know, in undergrad who would kind of scoff at Stephen King as not a, as, oh, he's entertaining, but he's not a real writer. And I, I don't know what they've ever read. There's nothing not literary about this book. I mean, this book is profound and literary in every way that you would expect um you know anybody in the canon uh to be it's just a genre fiction right and so the, i think just because of that they don't respect um the art that goes behind it and yeah when i'm reading this there's just nothing that doesn't make this a great book i mean it's it does everything all the great books do uh and 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 better than most actually and so yeah i i think uh 
I, I think you're totally right about that. Yeah, that section where Gage's sort of alternative, uh, like Lewis gets there just a second before to uh, a moment before to to trip Gage up and keep him out of the road, and then you have this whole life story uh, that that spins out of that. It's just, it's just devastatingly heartbreaking. Um, and, and I yeah, and I think that's what makes this book so powerful. And honestly, I think that's why the movie versions of it um, fail uh, to to capture what's great about the book is that they don't understand that it's not the story that's scary. It's it's the um, uh, it's the it's the the heartbreak that's underneath the plot, right. right? That that that's what's scary, the sense of loss and how terrifying loss is. That's what makes this book mm-hmm. brilliant. It isn't the plot itself. Um, the plot itself is actually just an adaptation of the monkey's paw. Uh, it, it's a very um, kind of hackneyed almost uh, horror narrative where you get three wishes, but every wish makes something bad happen, right? And so, um, and so the, the this is very much a telling of the of the monkey's paw. We've seen that story. There's nothing particularly unique or scary about the story. It's just what's what motivates this particular version of the story that makes it so just disturbing and, uh, and, and just kind of bleak and terrifying. So, um, the, uh, so I want to give you guys a chance to, uh, to bring up things that you wanted to talk about. One thing that um, I noticed in Doug Cowan's book about Stephen King and theology, uh, America's dark theologian. Again, um, it's about, Theology and Stephen King. I forget the subtitle of that. But um, if you go back and listen to our episode uh, from about a year or so ago, you'll hear that. The um, But the idea that uh, of borders being transgressed is really interesting to me. Um, and Cowan writes about how this book picks up some uh, concept from the anthropologist Victor Turner um, about liminality and sort of um, passing uh, through stages of tutelage uh, in, in some tribal societies. And so it's about ritual and things like that. And that's how he sort of evaluates this. And I think it's actually really smart. But one thing I noticed, a really weird quirk in this book, is anytime a door is mentioned in a house, it, it isn't just say it's between, the, it communicates between this room and that room. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, like dozens of times, doors communicate between rooms. Um, and, and to me, that's a um, like an uh, elaboration on this idea that there are distinct spaces and there are ways to bridge that gap between those distinct spaces. And this book's main idea is that there is the space of life and the space of death, and that bridge must not be crossed, right? Uh, you, you must not communicate <laughs> across that bridge, right? Um, and, and I think that, um, for me, the the deadfall is the clear um the clear like main symbol of this it's this idea that if you try to climb this thing you're just it's a suicide uh, mission because um it's it's tangled trees and if you climb up on it it cracks you're going to get stabbed to death by the uh by the by the wood and so um but the the evil makes it possible to communicate uh to go over the, that barrier and into this this place of uh that you shouldn't be right um and the way that um Turner writes about these liminal spaces. It's sort of like a space 
um, just at the edge of, of civilization, right? And I think the pet cemetery itself is that liminal space. It's like right at the edge of what's kind of um, permissible and healthy uh, for society. And when you go beyond that, you go into like madness and death, right? And, and um, I, I highly recommend taking a look at Cowan's book. He has some really interesting things to say about that. Um, and, and all these things have to do with kind of rituals, right? The, the ritual of a father, in this case, Judd, um, bringing his son into a new um, sphere of knowledge. In this case, knowledge he shouldn't have, right? Um, because his father before him, this old guy, not his literal father in this case, uh, some old guy uh, had showed him and his father before him had shown him. And so you have this sort of passing mm-hmm. down. That seems to break off with Steve at the end um, and, and the smallest amount of um, hope that's available in this book. But um, you have this sort of passing down of tradition um, that uh, I think this book is really kind of interested in. And uh, and speaking of tradition, so many things happen on or around holidays. Um, It's very fast. Like it's Halloween when uh, Norma uh, doesn't die, but she has a heart attack, I think, on Halloween, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then Thanksgiving is when church dies, right? And uh, it's around New Year's and Christmas when something else happens. And so these these holidays are kind of the markers of tragedy. And and I just think there's something this book is doing with like ritual and, uh, and whatnot that is just very fascinating. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on, on those aspects of the book or if you just want to move on, but I just want to make sure I get that out there. Todd. No, the the separation of spaces and so forth is, is, is interesting. I I appreciate the fact that you brought that up and I definitely have to get a hold of that book because that, that there's some interesting things going on there. Um, As you know, the, the clear warning is for the living not to go cross that barrier. Um, but, you know, the dead who come back, they're not even bound by physical barriers. Mm. Right. I mean, Pascal is several times is, is appears out of you know nowhere, having passed through materially through through doors, a wall. Yeah. And the cat does the same thing. I mean, the, you know, the cat. Is, um swears that the you know he let the cat out or didn't let the cat out and the cat was outside and killed a raven or something yeah and then you know the there's, this is one of these places where there's a lot of rationalization going on that well I, you know, there must be the cellar window or something like that yeah got in or something yeah and cats so, can jiggle the door handle in such a way that they open yeah <laughs> right yeah so so uh, it's interesting that 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 this, this, this border crossing thing is, is, is a fascinating idea. I have to chew on some. Yeah. Um, Kristen? One thing I was thinking of, uh, so when Norma Crandall dies sort of in the middle of the book, that's really being set up as the way things ought to be. Mm. Um, mm. She's in her 80s. Uh, she's been sick in various ways. Uh, she dies instantly of a cerebral hemorrhage or something like that. And when the doctors are talking among themselves, they're saying, you know, that's the way I'd want to go. And Ellie gets uh, introduced into grief and they make oatmeal cookies in remembrance, which is what's something she'd always done with Norma. And, and I thought that was being set up as the way things ought to be in contrast with every other horrific death we see here. Um, Until we get to the very end, when Gage comes back and says horrible things, um, because apparently that's what the Wendigo does, that they 
uh, it it knows your deepest darkest secrets, and um, and Norma had uh, been constantly unfaithful in a mocking sort of way, and um, I've seen her. She's burning in hell. Yeah. Um, so that so it seems like we were getting some sense that at least somewhere in this world there are some things that are good and right and in the natural order as they should be and then that is just totally taken away yeah and that seemed particularly devastating did, did you think of that as true information um i don't see any reason to doubt it honestly yeah. like um like every other time um when timmy baderman came back uh that is certainly um held up as true information yeah um, and it's not the whole story these were good people who had good sides too yeah um, but all he talks about is the bad but it's true bad um and so i don't see any reason to doubt that when it's being said about norma except i sort of get hung up on um not just what she was doing in life but she's burning in hell now yeah um, but that might just be my universalist proclivities. So don't listen to me. <laughs> You've reading that Rob Bell or whatever. Definitely <laughs> hard. I'm way too sophisticated for Rob Bell. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. Um, no, that's. I, I. I agree with you. Um, yeah. The. The. Whatever. The theological soundness of King's imagination is a different story. Right. But, um, but yeah, I, I kind of took it the same way. And actually that Timmy Baderman episode, I actually jotted something down because I I was, that really struck me too, because he does say this truthful information about these people's dark sides, right? These secrets that they had, but Judd goes out of his way to say that these were also good people who did good things. Right. And he doesn't talk about those. And I think it's actually a really kind of a, I mean, what is Twitter except Timmy Baderman back from the dead? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just like, it's just pointing out how terrible everybody is and making them only that, right? Instead of, um, uh, instead of acknowledging the complexity of the human person. Um, and, and so, yeah. And so I think that that's a, um, uh, another uh, fascinating aspect of this book. And it's, it's something to chew on for me, for sure. Um, yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, Todd. There, uh, there's a couple of further things that I think we could we could spend a lot of time on. Um, one thing, just to mention briefly, is, is well, I guess this is all wrapped up into the same thing. Fear is a huge motivating factor yeah. for people in this book, right? Um, you, you know, Rachel has this horrible episode with her sister um, uh, that that has haunted her for her entire life. Uh, has made her afraid to talk about death in in any real sense, you know. And we've already sort of touched on this uh, uh, in 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 our previous discussion. Um, so one thing I'd, I'd like your thoughts on is what do you make of the Zelda thing in Gage's burial suit? Uh, you know, at the end, uh, <laughs> is that a figment? Is that real? Is it the fact that the Wendigo really is in control here? I'd, I'd love to talk about that, but, um, you know, the, the other, the other, the other thing that I, I, I think I, I want to say before, maybe we can go back to that is, is, you know, there's a couple of places where Rachel, uh, is, is thinking about what's going on with Lewis 
And she says, the one thing Lewis was not was afraid. He would never be afraid. Mm-hmm. And I see Lewis as a completely fearful character. Yeah. I mean, fear drives him. Fear of intimacy, you know, is something that is very clear in him. Um, but fear of the unknown, fear of the unrationalizable is is so big. And one of the questions you asked me, you know, in, in, our, in your notes that we haven't gotten to, haven't talked about is what is it about the Creed family that wakes up the burial ground? Yeah. And I wonder if it's their collective fears. Mm. Um, and they're, su- they're subject to they're subject to the wiles of the Wendigo because they're so afraid of what they don't know or don't want to face. I agree with that, um, and I think that uh, in addition to that, it's their lack of hope. Uh, like, so it's not only that they're afraid of what might happen; um, they're afraid of of what might happen because they have no religious kind of faith, right? Um, they're all like irreligious at the beginning. Um, and so they don't have any kind of hope for something. I, I wrote something about the movie actually uh, for Matthew Brake's uh, Pop Culture and Theology when that came out last year. And, and or last spring it was, I guess. And, and I, that's the way I read Lewis is that he's susceptible to this evil because he has no hope for anything beyond mm. death, right? And so without that hope for anything beyond death, what will you do? What lengths will you go to to um, either stave off? And if you're given the power to overcome death, the sort of godlike power to overcome death, um, you're going to find a rational way to a way to rationalize that, uh, the use of that power. Mm. Um, and absolutely, I think it's born out of not just a fear, um, but just sort of a, a uh, a bleak, a bleak outlook on on creation. Kristen, you're thinking. <laughs> I was just thinking that um, that Ellie's the only one who survives, and she started going to Sunday school. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and and she's like, yeah, pulled away completely. She's seemingly seemingly safe with you know maybe some terrible grandparents, but but in Chicago, right? Um, from all this, and mm-hmm. yeah, and she has this kind of. Yeah, she does have a connection to Pasco yeah, too. She doesn't talk about things she was talking about in school before Halloween. She talks about uh, Jesus and Lazarus. Yeah, like there is there is some tether there that yeah. is, uh, yeah. at least from certain perspectives, more solid. Yeah, and and the thing she said, none she mentioned that about Lazarus about that story. It's a really interesting. Someone told her, I guess, in Sunday school that um, he had to say Lazarus because if he just says rise up, then the whole graveyard would have gotten up, right? And so there is this sort of like childlike faith in the kind of and limitless power of Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? He had to be very right. specific, or everyone would have would have risen up, right? Um, and so that that is a very interesting. Um, um, point there Kristen great um Todd what else you said you had something else oh well no I was just I was I had mentioned it uh before we went into this fear thing but you know Zelda um, oh right Zelda comes back in that in that in that scene um and Zelda is one of you know in one of Ellie's dreams slash prophecies um you know she encounters Gage and Zelda or say, you know, basically saying we're going to get your mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and where is Zelda coming in here? Because Zelda is not part, you know, Zelda is part of the, the story, but Zelda's not connected to Maine, not connected to the burial ground, but is in the afterlife in some sense, perhaps accessible to the Wendigo. 
I mean, I, yeah, gosh, that's a good question. I think so. She also provides the phrase that, like none of the characters know what to call what they're dealing with. There's no sort of like name they can put on it. So what they do is they go to something Zelda um, called about the Wizard of Oz, Oz the Great and Powerful, right? Um, and so that be, that's the last chapter of the book. Uh, the last section of the yeah. book is, is titled that. Um, and that's basically the name that Lewis starts referring to basically this sort of just kind of uh, gosh, almost like Lovecraftian um, death, right? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This sort of cosmic horror um, that's kind of beyond good and evil, right? This this uh, this idea of just like pure death, and um, and I, and he calls it Oz the Great and Powerful, and um, and the um, uh, and when Zelda, then I, I don't know. I feel like she is a human being who is twisted into monstrosity. I think right. that's the nature mm-hmm. of her um, by some kind of, by natural causes. I mean, it's meningitis. This isn't something anybody did wrong. It's just nature um, invading a body and, and twisting it into oblivion, right? And, and she becomes a monster um, because of nature. In this way, she has much in common with the werewolf. And um, uh, and so the, uh, which I had to find a way to bring that in. Uh, last year we talked Wolfman, right? So, uh, But the, uh, but in, uh, I think the point is, that she is almost like the ultimate symbol of how human beings are twisted by this this evil in this book into something monstrous. And so I, I think she that one of the faces that gauge whatever uh, embodies uh, in his resurrection is is Zelda kind of makes perfect sense. Um, probably much more than the way I just described that. Uh, uh, <laughs> you guys, I think I was bumbling a little bit there. Well, maybe just. In that Gage somehow knows everybody's darkest secrets, he would also have access to know that horrible story about his mother's childhood that he'd never been told. Yes. And and that would be a particularly vicious way to terrorize her. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, actually. Um, Yeah, Todd, do you have any other answer? I think I agree with... um, No, I think think that's... Yeah, I think I think that's that's it. And I, you know, again, I don't know. Is it Gage? Is it the Wendigo? Who is it that is? You know, who who, who is the motive force there? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, th- that's that's an example of one of these moments. And I don't want to push us. Well, I don't want to push us too much further because we're hitting an hour and a half here pretty soon. Yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to push us. I don't want to push in the, it's in the direction of the uh, of the movie, but this is one of these moments where you know a movie adaptation could have been fan, you know uh, amazingly awful, yeah. uh, <laughs> awful. I mean, in terrorizing to the viewer. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you know. Again, I don't, especially with what you have said about the movies. I'm not sure I want to watch the movies because I think I'll be disappointed because this is the pictures, the word pictures that there are in this novel are so good and. So rich that I think any movie would be uh, would fail uh, in my mind you know not just from the usual thing of resolving uh, ambiguities which movies always do and you know to poor effect yeah yeah I would say the new movie actually I thought was fairly effective um it, it it definitely doesn't have the power of the book um and so my mistake was I finished this book 25 years ago and I immediately went out and rented the, the original movie and I just thought it was terrible. Like I just, I cannot stand that movie just because I read it the night that I finished this book and it just paled in comparison. I'm sure the new movie would do the same, but I think it does capture the, 
the dreadful tone a little bit better. Um, it doesn't, I think it should have been one of these movies that should have been two and a half hours long. And I think that they left out, they, they focused too much on the plot and they left out the Timmy Baderman stuff. Um, there is Zelda, I think, I think is in it. And, and that is actually played to some really horrific effect, um, on Rachel's psyche in this book. And, um, and the way this book, the movie ends, if I can spoil that, um, maybe I should, I spoil, I shouldn't spoil it for people. Um, the, the book and the movie, excuse me, ends in, in a quite different way. The new movie, in fact, it's no secret. It replaces Gage with Ellie as the child who's, um, killed. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, which makes some sense because the actress is able to perform more than a small child. Right. And so, um, and, and so that, that's like the one major twist of the, uh, of the new movie version of it. And the, the ending is, is quite different and I can't tell mm-hmm. whether the ending is more or less bleak, honestly. Uh, and so, but they do something completely different with the ending, but it is no less, is no more, um, comforting at all and there's no norma in the new movie which is um i think a huge mistake so um but yeah yeah yeah, judd is just a widower when they move in and i I just think that's a terrible mistake so um but yeah um well um i've kind of said my piece on this and we are pushing an hour and a half if you guys have anything else to add i'm more than happy to give you some minutes um but i've really enjoyed this conversation i i love this book i i don't i mean it's one of those things how can you love a book like this but um uh, i find this book very um just moving and uh and scary and uh and very thought-provoking it is not a uh a book i want to read all the time and think about a lot because it's so disturbing but it's one of those things that it's a good place to go sometimes from the safety of your car listening to michael c hall um (laughs) do a really great main main accent he does the really great judd um by the way um but uh so uh uh, thanks, guys, for for joining us. Um, any last thoughts? I think I've said what I have to say. All right, thank you, Kristen and and Todd. No, I think I think it's all good. Um, wow, that is all I can say. Yeah, uh, yeah, good book. It's, it's definitely worth. Uh, I think the audio book was fifteen hours. I listened to it on. 1.5 speed and I probably got it done in like 10. So it's not, it wasn't too bad. So, um, and so the, um, um, the rest of the shows, I don't remember, I don't know what order these are coming out in, but go into your podcast, uh, feeder and, uh, and listen to all the episodes about all these great, uh, Stephen King books. And, uh, we want you to have a really great Halloween for Todd Pedler and for Kristen Philippic. My name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast. Mm-hmm.